You're listening to the Young Baptist Podcast, a show that exists to call believers to committed faithfulness to God's Word, to equip Christians by answering the tough questions that need to be asked, and to challenge churches on everything that distracts us from the beauty and glory of Christ. Now, here's your hosts, Clay Maynard and Josh Johnson. Thank you for listening to the Young Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're here with us. We're just a couple young leaders who care about the future of the church, and it's our desire to bring a fresh perspective on the issues in light of God's Word. I'm Josh Johnson, and I'm here with my co-host, Clay Maynard. How's it going, Clay? It's going great, Josh. Clay, I want to I wanna start off today by letting our audience know that you and I actually, we don't see eye to eye on everything. Yeah, that's true. Um, particularly in one glaring area. Um, and I think the best way to illustrate would be uh, to, to tell our audience a quick story. Okay. Um, this, this is uh, exciting, I think. <laughs> I'm a little worried. A couple Saturdays ago, <laughs> we did our sound check. And as, as I arrived at the church, my wife and I were just a few minutes late. And I walked into the sound booth here and you had already arrived and I saw in the sound booth that which you have in the sound booth today, that being coffee from Dunkin' Donuts. And uh, (laughs) I just want the audience to know that even two brothers in Christ who agree on so many things, we do not agree on Dunkin' Donuts coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you really built that up, Josh. Yeah, I know. I'm pretty good at that. I try to add some drama to that, but I, I'm just messing with you. Uh, are, is this a second tier or do, are we saying this is third tier? Uh, this is first tier. This is <laughs> this is first tier. Wow. So there's actually potentially major doctrinal discussions. We're getting down the line about that. Potentially. You were planning on approaching me apparently. The about good this. news is I know that you <laughs> are open to good coffee and that you drink it occasionally, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm more... You're a coffee snob. I'm a coffee addict. There's two different things. That's That's fair. I just love coffee. So I love really good coffee and I have an appreciation for really good coffee. And I know the difference. I know sometimes when I'm, what I'm drinking is not the most high quality coffee out there, you just but I just coffee. still want the coffee. Yeah. So give it to me anyways. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I am not willing to make those sacrifices. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, Josh, we just got back not too long ago from Las Vegas. Yep. Uh, when you listen to this, it'll be what the first of March, but man, it's been about Three weeks now that since we were out in Vegas, that was an awesome experience. Awesome time. Oh my goodness. Yeah, the Idea Summit, uh, Pastor Josh Tice uh, at Southern Hills Church in Las Vegas. Um, he puts on a great event out there. It's really a network for ministry leaders, yes. the Idea Network. And I really encourage you if you're a ministry leader or somebody who, who serves in a leadership capacity in a church, they have some great resources available. And there were so many people out there, Josh, I was excited to meet. Um, people I didn't know I was going to meet that I, that I got to meet. The networking, the conversations, the encouragement uh, in the faith and in, and in our various ministries, you know, just to reach people with the gospel, to do the best job we can uh, for our churches and serving them. It was just an incredible time. I'm really thankful that I was able to go. I was really thankful you were able to go with me. Me and Josh were hanging out in Vegas together. It was yeah, awesome. it was fun. It was a good time. And <laughs> really, I, I gained some some great stuff to bring back here to the church. And mm. uh, we've actually started implementing some of those different things. I mean, just outside of that, the fellowship with, yes. other, with other brothers and sisters was great. And it was cool to meet even some of our listeners. 
out there in Vegas. Oh yeah, we got we met some listeners of the podcast. That was really cool. And we met some uh hint hint we got to talk with some future guests yes, we on the Young Baptist podcast. Yes, so that's really exciting. So stay tuned for more information. Absolutely. On that. If you want more information about the Idea Network, there one thing that's really cool about them is they also have regional and local events. So they have Idea Nights, Idea Days, and then the Idea Summit. So when you look at them, realize you might have something relatively close to you or at least closer to you than Las Vegas. Yeah, and the best way um, to find that would be to visit their website, ideanetwork.church. Their website will tell you where events are at, when they're coming up. Man, if you can make it, if you can swing it, I'd go check one out. I think you'd be for sure. definitely helped by it. For sure. A couple episodes ago now, we started our Baptist Distinctive Series. We explained what biblical authority is, and then we had an interview with Pastor Brian Sams kind of getting into a more practical application of that. And then today we want to continue our series and talk about autonomy, the autonomy of the local church, the A in the, the Baptist acronym. Yeah, the B is biblical authority, which I was fun. I love biblical authority. And it really, it's an easy one. Yes. It's now, an easy one. Biblically and historically, it's a really easy one to talk about. Today it gets a little bit more difficult. Yeah, today's a little bit trickier in that last episode we you could pick a scripture and say, look at here's here's exactly what the Bible says about it. Yeah, here you have to look across the breadth of the New Testament yes. um, doctrine and what Paul taught in the churches to get a really good idea of what uh, of what congregational leadership and authority is, which is what the autonomy of the local church means. But I'll leave that to you, Josh, for definitions. Let's yeah, go. absolutely. So what it is autonomy, It a very simplistic definition would be it is to be self-governing. The authority is found within the body. They're not from outside sources or outside leadership, but from the congregation that is assembled in the church. We want to take a look at all that goes into this topic of autonomy throughout scripture. And we're going to get to that in a moment. Uh, first, we want to kind of define what it looks like as far as historically speaking. When we did our Baptist uh, our first episode on biblical authority, we uh, referenced several different books. I really like these books, Clay, and I decided I'm going to go back and check them out. They seem to be very solid. Uh, once again, we will link in the description the website that I am finding these on. It's a free free resource that you can check out for your own research purposes. But I'm going to read a couple different excerpts from these books. And uh, I, I think they kind of give a good idea of what we're talking about when we talk about the autonomy of the church. First is from the, the book, The Doctrines of Our Faith, page 168, section three on the government of the churches. It says, from all that appears, the New Testament churches regulated their own affairs. They had no governing board or ruler within themselves, nor any earthly lord or governor outside of themselves. They were responsible to Christ as their great head, but they had no earthly sovereign even to represent him. There are many indications of this self-government, too many to discuss here, but let it suffice to say that the way in which the apostle wrote to the churches shows that the seat of authority lay within the church itself, nor did any church claim or exercise any rule over another as the relations between the churches at Antioch and Jerusalem in Acts 15 plainly show. Yet the same occurrence and some others indicate that the churches had many common interests and we're united by many ties of fellowship and by some of cooperation. I want to go ahead and just throw this out there, Clay. What we're going to see consistently throughout this topic of autonomy is that when it comes to the government of a church, it is within the body, but it does not necessitate isolation. 
Just because you are autonomous does not mean you isolate yourself from others. And I don't want to get ahead of us here, but I want to throw that out here because you're going to see that consistently in each of these different books in the scriptures that just because you're autonomous doesn't mean you don't cooperate in fellowship with others. Yeah, the key is it's voluntary. You can voluntarily cooperate with other pastors, with other churches, with other congregations for specific purposes. That's not a compromise to your autonomy or to congregational government of your church. Absolutely. Let's continue on here in the book, Why I'm a Baptist by Clarence Larkin, uh, beginning in page 71. It says, every Baptist church is an independent and a pure democracy and is perfectly competent to do whatever a church of right can do. It is as complete as if it were the only church in the world. A church self-organized without a council would be a church, but it would have no right to call itself of some one of the name of the denominations as the Baptists without their consent for the reason that it might hold doctrinal views and practices that might bring discredit upon that denomination. According to the Baptist view, the governing power of churches rests with the members, including pastors and deacons and should be administered in accordance with New Testament usage. The officers of the church can do nothing without the consent of the membership. The power of a church cannot be delegated either to its officers or to any delegate sent to an association of churches in any way that will impair its independency. The advantages of such form of church government are many. It gives every member in the church a voice in the management. The rich and influential cannot lord it over the poor. And I think that's something we'll get into in a little bit, but... That's the beauty of church government. The rich and the poor, your social status doesn't determine the the voice that you have in the church. Yeah, there's an equality in the congregation. It, this isn't like a, a Fortune 500 company where the people with the biggest money are in making mm-hmm. the biggest decisions. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about, can the hand say to the foot? Can the foot say to right. the hand? No, that I'm not part of the body or I'm not as important, you know? And scripture talks a lot about partiality. This is, we come into this building we're all bought by the blood of the lamb. We're all members of the royal family. We're children of the king. We all have a seat at the table here when it comes to, as long as we're a faithful and a committed member of this body, or in in your case, the body of your local church, you have a voice. Absolutely. Scripturally. Continuing on, we have the book, The Baptist by Henry Vetter, pages 15 to 16. It says, in the matter of church polity, Baptists also attempt to take the New Testament as their guide and to follow the simplicity of apostolic times. The apostolic period, the believers of any locality formed an assembly or church. There were no officers in these churches except elders or bishops and deacons. Each church enjoyed an absolute autonomy and no external authority existed. In cases of need, a church called on others for help and the other churches recognized their obligation to render aid. In doubt and difficulty, a church asked advice, and the other churches acknowledged their duty to give counsel. And finally, we have Baptist Beliefs by E.Y. Mullins, page 64 to 65. Its government is democratic and autonomous. Each church is free and independent. No church or group of churches has any authority over any other church. Cooperation in Christian work, however, is one of the highest duties and privileges of the church's of Jesus Christ. So that's a little a little peek into what has been written about uh, the autonomy of the local church. Clay, I think you have a one of the confessions that kind of speaks to all of this. Yeah, so there is a historic confession that speaks to this. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, section 26, paragraph 7 says this, to each of these churches thus gathered, which is important, it's the assembly, 
Each of these churches thus gathered according to his mind, declared in his word, he hath given all that power and authority, which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline, which he hath instituted for them to observe with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. And it gives a list of references as all of these, these really good confessions do. A couple of paragraphs later, it says this, the way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit under the office of bishop or elder in a church is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself and solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer with imposition of hands of the eldership of the church. If there be any before constituted therein, and if a deacon, that he be chosen by the like suffrage and set apart by prayer and the like imposition of hands. So in those two paragraphs, one says the congregation is responsible for the practices and the discipline of the church. The next one says they're responsible for the choosing of their leadership, which brings us to other ways of doing this. So you're asking, if you're listening to this, you're thinking, what, what are the options? Let me throw this out there before we continue. As we go through these Baptist distinctives, I, I believe we said this when we talked about biblical authority. We were going to say it today, and we'll probably say it in every other episode. These distinctives are what make you historically Baptist. We're not suggesting that believers in churches who are of Orthodox faith don't practice these things. We're just focusing our, our efforts upon that which makes an individual, that which makes a church historically Baptist. Right. And we're also not saying that on each of these distinctives, that there aren't other denominational traditions that focus on them or value them or believe in them. Right. It's the collection of all of these distinctives together. So we're going to do this whole series on the distinctives. It's all of them together that make one historically a Baptist, not just one of them, because there are other, like you said, we mentioned it in the previous episode, there are other people who believe in biblical authority sure, that aren't Baptist, but it's the collection of all these together. So this is, I will say this is one of the most Baptist, uniquely Baptist ones. Yes, I'd agree with you there. This is the one of the ones that's that's most unique to us. But there are other church government types. And the two of the two primary ones are Episcopal and Presbyterian. And then there's some versions that I've seen out there that are like hybrids of these. Mm-hmm. I feel like some churches just just go all out and it's like, yeah, we have a CEO and we just run like a a company, right? We're like a, we're like a, a business, so it's like they take a they make a hybrid of some of these of these church governance types and just do their own thing. And it would seem that even I know you're about to explain those those different church governments. It would seem sometimes you see those particular governments even within the Baptist Church. I think it's mostly unintentional, but I believe you still see it from time to time. I'm glad you said it's unintentional. One of the things that I think is very common is that people don't really know what they're, why they're doing what they're doing. Right. They've not really thought about it. Most church members probably are like, I don't know why we do it this way. We just, this is just the way we do it. And maybe at some point it just got decided among the people that it was the most effective way of doing it. It was the most efficient, whatever, but they've not looked to the scripture to see if it matches what scripture teaches. And that's an important thing that we're doing things the way, you said it last week on biblical authority. Ask yourself always, why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. I think most people may not even know that the Bible gives us explicit instructions on some of these things, but it does. And if you don't, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So we're going to go through Episcopal and Presbyterian. We do not believe these are scriptural models, but they get used a lot. Um, The Episcopal method is Roman Catholics, United Methodists, the Church of England, which the Church of England became in the United States Episcopalians because. Um, after the Revolutionary War, they decided being called the Church of England wasn't very popular. <laughs> but Episcopal comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means bishop. So another word for that is overseer, elder, 
pastor. But the Episcopalians like the word bishop. <laughs> and you'll see this in their titles because it sounds more authoritative, I think, to them. Um, but but what the Episcopal system is, and by the way, uh, the, just because it's the word Episcopal, it doesn't mean only the Episcopalians do it. Right. It, it's weird because the, the titles of these church governance systems don't necessarily always correlate to the denominations with the same name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they often do. So the Episcopalians, it's the bishop. He's the one with the authority. And this is, this is really the question of church governance is who makes the decisions? Who, is in, who is, has ultimate authority over the church? And that's when we say that we're talking about human authority. on earth. Yes. yes. We, we want to acknowledge upfront that we understand that Christ is the head of the church and that at the end of the day, all authority for the church rests solely in Christ. But we're making distinctions here for the church that is on earth and those who help move the church forward on earth. Yeah, you can believe that Christ is the head of the church and want to do his will and have one of these, in our view, incorrect governance systems. You can be right on the gospel and get these wrong. We just, historically Baptists, believe it a certain way. And the, the Episcopals, they, they focus on the bishop having the authority. It's one guy. He rules over the congregation. Um, they might have, and Catholicism does this for sure. There's, I mean, the Pope is the most obvious example of this. He's the bishop of bishops, if you will. And then under him are more bishops and under him are, them are more bishops all the way down to the local geographic areas, regions. But those bishops in those areas have all the authority, but the parishioners do not have authority in those churches. They might have input sometimes, but they don't actually have final say or authority. Uh, the churches are run by the bishops. The bishops do everything. Finances, big decisions. They pick the local leaders. They fire the local leaders. They excommunicate people, right? So that's the, Episcop- the, the, the Episcopals. In the, Epis- the Episcopos has all control, the bishop. Fun fact, there is no scripture for this, right? Zero. If you listen to Catholics or Episcopals talk about, Episcopalians talk about where they get this from, they basically say, well, this is the way historical church did it. Um, so they, they rely on tradition. Mm-hmm. And then they try to find scant stuff in there and say Peter was the first pope and all this stuff. And then they basically go from there to say, the Bible doesn't really tell us how we have to do it. So we're just going to do it this way because this is what we've seen. Which is something we have to be careful about as Baptists. Mm, the that, way we do something, we've always done something is, is not a good argument. Yeah, we got to make sure that we're, we're rooting it in scripture and that it's not just because that's how grandpappy did it. <laughs> exactly. So it's also untrue that the, the, the Christian history, that church history has done it this way. So, uh, and if you want more information on this, look at, I mean, we're going to go through some of these scriptures later, but 1 Timothy 5, Matthew 18, 1 Peter 5 blows the Episcopalian model up. And now some of you are thinking right now, you're listening to this, you're like, I've been in a Baptist church that operates like this. <laughs> uh, yes, you're probably right. Uh, there are some how Baptist churches that do operate like this. They, they pretend to have congregational authority in some cases. Sometimes they don't even pretend. The, everybody knows the pastor decides everything. And if you, if you believe what the pastor, if you, if you believe what the church believes, you're going to get in line and do what the pastor tells you. Uh, and the pastor has no, there's no real outside input. Some of them have like a, have a, a show of a congregational authority. Like they, they have like quick meetings to get buy-in from people, but it's, it's understood in those meetings. Everyone's going to do what the pastor wants or else, right? If you speak up, if you say something that you, if you disagree, you're going to get treated like a rebel. You don't trust the pastor. You're going to get shunned. You're going to get talked down to or get talked down about. Maybe the pastor will have his preaching buddy come in and blast everybody in a revival meeting on pastoral authority, <laughs> right? You know, the kind of stuff Paul the Apostle did when people weren't listening, right, Josh? Exactly. <laughs> I hope that this, all the time. I hope the sarcasm here is abundantly clear. But many of you have seen this practice, though. 
Matter of fact, Jack Hiles famously said once, people say, are you a dictator? I say, no, but I'm so close it's hard to tell. Oof. <laughs> That's not good. That is so, not good at all. <laughs> I'll just leave that out there. Uh, by the way, if the, what's the problem with this? First of all, there's two big problems with it. One is the congregation won't grow and mature spiritually. They are priests. They should be serving. They should be leading. They should be learning. They should be growing. And this makes them apathetic, mm-hmm. passive. They don't grow. They don't serve. They don't, they don't, they're not really a part of the body the way they should be. Well, and I, I guess you could say it this way. That's one of the dangers of a congregational style of church government. If you just want to come to church and be a consumer, that's not going to work too great. That's the point. In the congregational That's the point. The congregational form of church government requires input. It yeah. requires the congregation to get involved. Now, and that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why true congregational government are really effective churches. They're very engaged churches mm-hmm. because you have to be, because you're not just going to sit around and wait for the pastor to do everything. Um, the other problem with it is, so the congregation won't grow and mature, but also the pastor will be unaccountable and too powerful often. And even if he's a really good guy and he doesn't, it doesn't go to his head, he might get burnt out. You might run the guy into the ground because he, it's really difficult to do everything yourself and to make all the decisions with no delegation. So that's the first one is Episcopalian. Second one is Presbyterian. Um, the Greek word for this is presbyteros. Bible chapels do this. Calvary chapels are run this way. If you've ever seen any of those. Presbyterians, the whole Presbyterian denomination. There's several denominations in Presbyterianism. They all use this. Apostolic churches use this. And presbyteros means, is Greek for elder. So these are elder-run churches. There's a group of elders. Now, they're, usually they're selected by the congregation, but after they're selected, they rule over the congregation. The group makes all the decisions. And then they report to or are, or are actually accountable to other groups of elders in the denomination. The, the final authority is not the people. The people might select the elders, but the final authority is the elders. And they meet together in these assemblies and stuff. Um, this model is taken partially from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. This is the argument that the Presbyterians make for this. They have, they have more, a little more evidence scripturally than the Episcopalian model does. Mm-hmm. This is what they argue, that there was an assembly in Acts 15 of elders because they were having an issue. You actually mentioned in one of your quotes, Josh, that they, it, he talks about Acts 15 and says that this is one reason why you know it's not isolationism mm-hmm. to be good congregationalists. What the Presbyterians do is they take that and they say, oh, well, what they were doing is they sent their elders to hash out the issues as they arose and then the elders made the decision. Uh, so a lot of pa- Baptists do this. They don't have pastors. They don't, may not have pastors that run the church like a bishop, but they do this. They have a group of guys or, or elders that make all the decisions for the church. And it's, I will say it's pretty efficient to do things this way sometimes. Sure. The problem is it's not what Acts 15 teaches. It doesn't work biblically for a couple of reasons, but we, and we can't get into a full disadulation. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just said I couldn't think of the word. We can't, <laughs> we can't get into a full breakdown of Acts 15 right now, but suffice it to say this, Paul, Barnabas, James, and Peter all speak here, right? I mean, we're talking about apostles speaking in Acts 15. Very important people in the New Testament. And they brought elders in from the local church, from all the local churches. And what did they do? They discussed these things as equals. So you don't see this denominational hierarchy that people claim you're seeing here in Acts 15. They make the case to them to change the way their churches are operating and they do it by persuasion. They don't do it from, they don't, they don't say, hey, we're the apostles. You're going to do what we say. They don't say that. They make a case. Paul tells them, hey, this is, he's persuasive. He describes why it's the right way. They don't make the case from absolute authority. They make the case from persuasion. 
they convince them. But even if you disagree with me on Acts 15, 1 Timothy 5 lays out that the, how the congregation is to hold an elder accountable. It actually lays out a process for a congregation holding an elder accountable, not a higher up elder group or the other elders of the church. It's the congregation. And we'll get into that in just a second. But 1 Peter 5 plainly says that elders are not lords over God's heritage. Right. 1 Peter 5, the elders which are among you, I'm, I exhort, I'm also an elder. And down in verse three, two or three or four says, neither as being as lords over God's heritage, mm-hmm. but being in samples or examples to the flock. So this destroys both Episcopal, to me, 1 Peter 5 destroys both Episcopal and Presbyterian leadership models, in my view, with that, with that one verse. Um, not to mention the instructions around the New Testament about how the congregation is responsible for church discipline and other things. And we'll get to that here in just a moment. So the last one is the one we believe, which is congregationalism. It's what we've been talking about, what Josh defined and gave quotes about, which is the autonomy of the local church. By the way, you, you're only an autonomous local church. It's only really effective with congregational government. The only human authority in the church is the congregation. Now, how they delegate responsibility, they, they can de- delegate certain responsibilities to their leadership, to maybe committees over certain areas. Hey, we, we empower the, this committee to make these financial decisions. We empower the elders to lead in this way. They, this one labors in the word and doctrine. This one labors in administration. This one helps us organize. And of course, as they lead, we honor them. We allow them to rule well and we follow them. But the ultimate authority goes back to the congregation. the congregation. Every decision doesn't need to be a vote. That's not what we're saying. The congregation can decide what always needs, what needs to be a vote or what doesn't. But ultimately the authority, they're not, they may be ruled by pastors and elders, but ultimately the authority is the body. People say, I thought the, the pastor was, in, was the one in charge of the church. I thought the deacons were the ones in charge of the church. It's probably because that's what you've seen. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible does indicate that they have important roles to play. Read 1 Timothy 3. It's, it's very, it, their role is very important, but the role is not one of dictatorial authority. Yeah, they're still part of the body. Right, they're part of the body. Now they have a role because they're a member of the church. Right. But it's the congregation. Their roles is one of a servant. It's one of spiritual leadership, not lording over God's heritage. They have heavy responsibilities. The church members are supposed to respect them in their leadership roles and relate to them in such a way that their work will be, First Hebrews 13 says, allow them to rule in such a way so that they can give account with joy and not with grief. Mm-hmm. That's important. And those that rule well, it says we should count them worthy of double honor, especially those that are the preaching and teaching ministry. They labor in the word and doctrine. And it sets very high standards for these people. We're yeah. going to talk about that more later in the distinctives, but the deacons are to be servants and not governors of the church. So God rules the church. This is the important thing. God rules the church through his word and through the spirit. Who has the word and who has the spirit? Every saved believer. That's right. And the member, if you're a member in that church in good standing, you, ha- you should have a voice in that. That's the New Testament model. All right, so let's talk about a couple of passages of scripture that detail this for us so that you know that I'm not just making this stuff up. This is what the Bible teaches. Uh, Matthew 18 is one of the first ones. This is if there is an issue, there's a trespass against someone in the church. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. This is really interesting here because it says witnesses, not elder, not bishop, not deacon. Maybe it is one of them. I mean, they're probably more mature members of your church at that point. So it's not a bad thing to, for that to be them. But it's, it's, as long as it's somebody that's a saved member of the church who knows the word of God, it doesn't have to be them. So it's just a witness. And then look what it says. 
that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto who? The church. The church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto the as an heathen man and a publican. In other words, he's excommunicated from the church, from the, from the membership of the, of the body. So ult, the ultimate authority in church discipline here is the body. Mm-hmm. Another passage is 1 Timothy 5. Uh, Josh, you have that, correct? Yeah, 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20 says, against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses, them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. Just right in line there with what you just read there from Matthew chapter number Yeah, he uses the word witnesses again. Yes. Do it before two or three witnesses. And this, interestingly, Matthew 18 is talking about just, just another brother in the church. This, this is, is talking, about, talking elders. about elders. Yeah. So elders is a little different than regular members because it does say here, because they have such a high bar for in First Timothy 3 for serving in that role, it does create a little bit of a higher bar here and say, don't go to them alone. Start, by, start with two or three witnesses. Mm-hmm. And then if it's found that they've been in sin, rebuke them before all. It before all. It doesn't really say that about the regular member yeah. until they, unless they won't repent. This one says, if they've sinned, rebuke them before all. So that, so that they're, because they're an example to the church in every way, right? Absolutely. Uh, they're, they're accountable to the whole church. That's what this is establishing. That the reason they need to be rebuked before the whole church is because they're accountable to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really high bar, but it's an amazing thing um, that again, it goes back to, the church, the whole church. Right. Uh, First Corinthians five. I'll read one more on this on this subject. It's talking about somebody who's committing sin. First Timothy. Or I'm sorry. First Corinthians five is all about somebody who's living in sin in the church. And what does Paul say? Verse four. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, there it is, the whole assembly, mm-hmm. and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ooh, that's heavy. Where does the power of the Lord Jesus Christ show up? in the assembled congregation. The assembled congregation has the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. What does he say? To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here again, what greater power is there in a church than to kick somebody out? Mm. That's, that's the ultimate power. And, yeah. who, and that's the ultimate authority. And who has that? And what human authority has that in the local church? The According to 1 Corinthians 5, yeah. the congregation. So you can't have, you should not have pastors kicking people out without, without the congregation knowing what's going on. I've seen this happen multiple times. People disappear. Nobody knows what happened. The pastor took care of it. Well, that's not the biblical model. So, and you see this, this is, so you see this true of, of church discipline. What else? Whose job it is, whose job is it to defend sound doctrine? Jude 1, 3, who reads to Jude chapter one. He's writing to the whole church. Verses one through three, by the time he gets to verse three, he's saying that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered. So who's contending for the faith? The whole church. church. Galatians 1, 6 through 9 says specifically that if someone teaches heresy, heresy, if someone teaches you another gospel, and Paul even says there, if if we do it, or an angel does it, or anyone does it, you kick them out. You show them the door. He says, you you immediately deal with it. Who is he talking to in Galatians 1? The whole church. Mm-hmm. He's saying it is your job. You have the ultimate authority in defending sound doctrine. So one really practical way of working this out is, do you know what this doctrinal statement of your church is? Are you, if you're a member there, do you know what it says? Mm. The whole church is responsible for that doctrinal statement. The teaching ministry of the church. The whole church is responsible for the teaching ministry of the church. Not just one person or two people or four pastors or anything like that. I was actually listening to Matthew Lyon talk about this and he mentioned people that say, Oh, I don't really agree with the pastor, but I'm not the pastor. That's not what the Bible teaches. Galatians 1, he said, 
he basically said, I'm, I'm Marvel that you so soon are, are, yeah, that you've been so soon removed from the gospel. Yeah. You've been, you've been distracted. You've been taken. I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm amazed that you so quickly have been moved away from the true gospel. Paul would say, I'm so, I'm, I'm Marvel that you're just listening to your pastor over God's word. Wow. So it's easy to be apathetic, isn't it? It's easy to just say, I'll oh, just trust the pastor. Just trust the elders. No, that's not what, that's not what the Bible teaches. These people had Paul the apostle, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't just have your local pastor. They had Paul the apostle. And he's saying, it's your, responsible, it's your responsibility to check me. You, you, you don't get to just say, well, the pastor went to Bible college. So what do I know? No, don't be lazy. Look at how Paul, com- we talked about this last week. Look at how Paul commends the Bereans. The Bereans didn't just say, well, Paul said it, he's an apostle. No, they went home and they searched the scripture. Um, another thing Matthew Lyons mentioned on his podcast, which by the way, that's the History and Hope podcast. If yeah, check that out. That's a That'd great podcast. To you. Matthew Lyons put, pointed out there too. I'd never heard this before, but in 1 Corinthians 11, it gives the authority of, of the Lord's Supper, of administering the Lord's Supper to the congregation as well. So go look that up, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. We won't get into all of these passages today in depth, but let's suffice it to say, it all goes back to the authority of the congregation. The last thing I'll talk about today is selecting elders and deacons. Acts chapter six is a good reference for this. The congregation chooses the deacons. Who chooses the elders? Well, this one's a little fuzzy because in the Bible, the apostles appointed the elders. Uh, Baptists believe that the congregation chooses the elders. Why? Why? Where do we make that jump um, from the biblical model? Well, because we don't have the apostles anymore. Jesus' apostles are not here anymore. And the highest authority in, in the congregation is, in, in the church is the congregation. And you start to see a shift. Acts chapter 13, even Paul and Barnabas were sent as missionaries. And who sent them? Does it say? Who did the spirit speak to in selecting yeah, it was the men? Church. It was the church. Mm-hmm. So there starts to be a shift there after they select those first elders, after they select those, those initial guys, after that, those local church bodies start to make those decisions using the word and the spirit. Mm-hmm. They judge these guys according to first Timothy. What are we supposed to be doing? Judge them according to, uh, uh, against first Timothy three to pick qualified candidates for leadership. So the congregation picks the elders. That's what we believe. And I think a good, you say, well, so, so pastors and leaders shouldn't be the one picking elders. I think what Acts shows us is that when a church is first starting, there might be a place for the sending church that, that's planting the new work. And that's practical. Because there's not a church there yet. Yeah. So, so to pick, to send a guy and to maybe even pick people to go with them that can serve as elders, well, and I don't fine. think that this would even mean you can't have recommendations from those in leadership. Oh, sure, from outside sources. If you have, yeah. a, if you have a person, a, a, a missionary or a pastor or an elder in another church who has been an advisor to your church, maybe he's come and preached for you. Maybe he's advised you in multiple ways. For him to recommend people, that's a great practice. Yeah. This is what Paul the apostle did. But at the end of the day, he regularly just because he said it doesn't mean you have to pick that person. You right. the the decision comes down to the church. Yep. So I can totally see that being a a legit way of doing it. Like a lot of these churches looked at Paul as like almost like an elder at large. You know, he was, he was, he would spend some of his time there with them, ministering alongside them, being a, like a local elder, but then he would travel a lot and write letters to them. And you see them treating him sort of like an elder at large for like a spiritual advisor. So that's important. That's, that's fine. But the authority is in the congregation. Uh, So the churches, think about it. The churches in the new Testament, they selected their own membership, right? People in the church to care for the physical needs of other members. They determined what people would be commissioned for specific ministries. That's Acts 13. They disciplined their own members. Um, these, each of these actions are taken under the Lordship of Christ and the guidance of the Holy Spirit without any external direction or control. Spiritual leaders, even like the Apostle Paul, relied on persuasion and example rather than dictatorial demands when writing to the New Testament churches. Now, 
I can say from experience, Josh, I have not seen a lot of church churches function like this. Mm. And I don't know about our listeners and I don't know about you. I, I just, I know this is what the Bible teaches and this is what Baptists historically believe, but there is a ton of churches that have Baptists on the side that are not doing this. A lot of Baptist churches are functioning like Presbyterians, group of guys, or like Episcopalians. Well, and truthfully, any, any church is basically but one generation, one leader, one decision away from stepping away from the autonomy that we, that we historically would believe in as Baptists. And I don't know that I can say it's on purpose. I, I, no, I don't believe it is. I don't think a Baptist intentionally doesn't practice autonomy. I think you just, you do what you've seen. A lot of times you just default to that. Or you just drift slowly over time. Yeah, and you just get comfortable. And next thing you know, you're not practicing anything in the New Testament. (laughs) Maybe you have a a congregation who over time, there's less and less engagement at the business meetings. And before you know it, it's like eight people that are making all the decisions and everybody just kind of goes with it. Man, as I was studying this, Josh, it really stuck out to me how important all the distinctives are in connecting with each other. Saved church membership. Yeah. How important is that? Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that in the future, but how important is that when it comes to church governance? How important is the pre- them understanding the priesthood of the believer? Like oh, all yeah. this stuff works together. So this kind of leads us into, there's two errors really we'd like to talk about, about the autonomy of the local church. Yeah, for people who do try to practice congregational governance. Yeah, I think most of our listeners will probably immediately recognize each of these and, and see them in different places. On one end, you have the error of extreme isolationism where, well, I'm autonomous, I'm independent, and so fooey on everyone else, basically. <laughs> like, I'm, we're over here, we're doing our thing, we're, we're doing our thing and just let us be. And I don't know, I guess that's admirable to a degree that one would want to be so independent, so autonomous that the outside influences of other men and ministries wouldn't impact them. Even from a historical standpoint, that's just not accurate. When you look at Acts chapter number 15, you see the church of Antioch is dealing with these Judaizers and they're like, this isn't right. We need to, we need to seek counsel. Yep, they ask we need for to help. seek counsel. What do we do? So they went to Jerusalem. They met together with the apostles. They, they went through all of this process. And then when you're in Acts chapter number 15, it says, so when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. It would appear to me that when they went to Jerusalem, James was like, hey, let's just tell them to abstain from sexual immorality, avoid meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. He says, let's tell them that we don't need to add any extra burdens to these people. Yep. Yeah. And then they went back to Antioch and they read this to them. They read the epistle and from what I'm reading here, when they read it, they rejoiced for the consolation. The church was in support of it yep. and they moved forward. They with unified. It. If they were extremely isolated, they would have been like, forget those people down there. We're just going to figure this out ourselves. Yeah. Who, who are they to tell us yeah. what we should do? Yeah. And we got to be, we got to be very careful. It's like what E.Y. Mullen said there in Baptist Beliefs, cooperation in Christian work is one of the highest duties and privileges of the churches of Jesus Christ. When we know that to reach the world with the gospel, we have to cooperate with people. Yeah. Voluntary cooperation with other churches, other Christians is a good thing. We have our local body, but we are part of the bride of Christ and the bride of Christ is global. And so working with with as many people as we can to get as much done as we can is a good thing. 
We have to be careful, obviously. But cooperation does not negate autonomy. Right. Autonomy is not isolation. No. And we're going to get into that in more detail. We'll tell you a little more about that at the end of the episode. The other error that you see from time to time would be you've got the extreme isolationism over here. On the other side, you've got an over-dependence on outside sources. And we've all seen this one. Yes. Especially with the, I guess, advent of mega churches. Yep. And, and celebrity pastors. Celebrity pastors and big ministries and, and colleges. It goes from, well, we're going to make the decisions within to where outside voices have equal weight with those within the congregation. Mm-hmm. And equal, an equal weight to scripture. Yes, to a degree. I mean, you mean I can't just buy my favorite pastor's um, church manual and just do it that way? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, there's probably there's probably a lot of good stuff in some of these church manuals. Yeah, and man. that's what we got to say here is that you can use those things. Those are great resources. But when you start looking at that, like, well, you get up there on a Sunday or you're sitting in the congregation and you hear, well, brother so-and-so said in this book... <laughs> that we need to do X, Y, and Z. So we're going to do X, Y, and Z. That's the way because that's, that's, the way. What, that, that's what brother so-and-so said. Doctor so-and-so. Oh yeah, doctor. Honorary doctor so-and-so said. <laughs> well, now you're getting into, like you're just, you're handing your, your congregation over to this dude who, who has no authority over their congregation. Yeah, there, and there's even people who have, I would say they've not given direct influence over their church, but indirect influence over their church. There is this external pressure when you're part of certain networks. I'm going to be real careful here. Yeah. But even in the independent Baptist world, I see as much homogeneity, which is to say, I see a lot more pressure sometimes and cookie cutter churches. I see as much of that or more. I would argue more in a lot of independent Baptist circles than I do see in other, in other full-scale denominations who just admit their denomination. So why is that? How can that happen? To me, it can only happen because we're, we're sacrificing autonomy. We've convinced ourselves because our statement of faith says we're autonomous or because we claim that as a Baptist distinctive and that we're Baptists. We feel like that does it. But practically, it's not working out that way. Practically speaking, the Bible college I went to or this very influential pastor that has had a big influence on me is deciding all, I'm doing everything that he says I should do. I'm not allowing my congregation to to function. I'm not allowing them to have authority. I'm, we're, we're bringing these outside sources in and we're not looking to the word and the spirit that each of us has on our own. I'm not saying, like you said, it's nothing wrong with advice, but man, given that such an inordinate amount of influence and authority over the church is wrong. And even, even if it's not a, a Bible college or a certain preacher, it can be a collection of preachers. It could be somewhat of a circle that you run in where when you see something is true in scripture or you see something for yourself as true, you, you might even be scared to say it out loud because you know if you do, doors are going to get shut in your face. And instead of saying, hey, what's the best way for me to reach my community in my context with the gospel and encourage these people to know the word and be in t- touch with the spirit and let's govern this church here. There's all this other pressure. So yeah, you're right, man. That other ditch is, is real. Even in churches that put the word independent on their side. All right, to wrap this up, Josh, why is this important? Well, if for no other reason, it's what the Bible teaches. Mm. That's a good enough reason, right? We started with biblical authority. We said it was the king of the distinctives. We're going to hold true to that. That alone is a good enough reason. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's Christ's church, and he's the head. We should follow his word. 
one of the big questions I get is, man, isn't that inefficient for the congregation to always be involved and, and to be engaged? Isn't, aren't the opinions of people and aren't the, well, there, there certainly is a lot of balance because Paul talks specifically about making sure you're not looking out for your own self, that you're esteeming others better than yourselves, that you're letting people of low degree be judges, that you're not, that you're seeing inequality and that you're not look at just being selfish. You know, you're leading, there's unity and humility. Paul goes over that repeatedly. Why? Because that's the only way to get things done in a congregational setup. You have to show humility. Um, and yes, it can be less efficient at times, but it's effective because it includes all the members in the life and ministry of the church. And because of that representation, the church is strengthened. People feel like they're more part of the church than they otherwise would. Um, a church in the hands of the congregation has proven to be the most effective means of carrying out the purpose of the church, like evangelism, discipleship, and ministry. Why? We need everybody. In order to run as a congregational church, we've got to have everybody in. We've got, in order to run like a historically Baptist church, we need the congregation to be engaged. And so you can have a, a very engaged congregation when you operate this way. We're not consumers at church. We're participants. If we were consumers, then it doesn't matter. Run it however you want. It's a business, but we're not. And so all my encouragement is be a participant at your church. And that's what it means to believe in the autonomy of the local church. Now we hinted at getting into a little more detail on the differences between autonomy and isolation. And on March 22nd, we have the privilege of interviewing Pastor Kurt Skelly. And he is going to come on and share a little more about this subject of autonomy and isolation and how the two don't really jive together according to what we see in the scripture. Yeah. You're going to enjoy that episode. That's going to be a huge help to you. But mark that one down, March 22nd, uh, interview with Kurt Skelly right here on the Young Baptist Yeah, we're podcast. very excited about that. That's going to be awesome. Absolutely. And man, talking about interviews, we have some great ones lined up. We are not going to tell you who they are. Oh, but <laughs> stay tuned. We got some good stuff coming. We are excited about what's ahead. And uh, before we sign off today, I just want to say on behalf of me and Clay, thank you guys so much for listening, for your support for sharing our podcast with your friends and family on social media and leaving us reviews on wherever you consume the content. We really appreciate that. I got to be honest, I am just completely blown away at the kind of support that we have received. Yeah, me too. And we're just we're just a handful of episodes into this thing. And it, Clay, if you would have told me when we were brainstorming this back in September of 2020, if you would have told me it was going to go the way it's gone, I would have probably laughed at you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the support has been amazing. And we really are grateful for all of you for interacting with us, for sharing our stuff. It's, it's, been, it's been tremendous. And the conversations that have come from it, it's been, it's been rich. And we really, really are grateful for all the support out there. And, and I know one of, our, our, one of the part of our purpose is to answer the, the hard questions. And you may, I don't know, some may be thinking, you guys are you guys are hitting softballs right now. Don't worry, we're coming to all of that. <laughs> we're just trying to lay a good foundation right now as to why we are Baptists and why we believe. What, yeah, well, what we, we believe. believe, and it's going to really set the stage. I'm looking forward to some of the conversations we're planning. Josh and I have had several of these uh, whiteboard meetings where we've gone into a lot of detail about some of the really interesting topics we want to talk about about church life and Christian life, and we hope you'll stick around for the journey with us. Because I just wish we would have been recording these back when. We were sitting in my office when you'd come for lunch and just talking about stuff. It would save us so much time. <laughs> we, we did talk a lot about a lot of these topics before, that's yeah. for sure. Well, Clay, what do you think, man? To him be glory in the church. Amen. There it is. 
There it is. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Young Baptist Pod. And check out our website at theyoungbaptistpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you consume the content. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Young Baptist Podcast.